Caught Offside with Andrew Gunling and J.J. Devaney. Henderson outside of the boot. Magnificent ball. Salah for the hat-trick. Oh, he's got it! The first touch wasn't his best, but Mo Salah finishes beautifully. From the Upper West Side of Manhattan and from an apartment in Brooklyn, New York, Andrew Gunling and J.J. Devaney. What's up, brother? Oh, what a Monday. What a Monday. I have floated through this last 12 hours or so, Andrew. Just, there's few things in life can give you that kind of joy. And yesterday gave me all of it. A joy overload. Um, yeah, I'm sure it did. That had to have been one of the most memorable Liverpool-Manchester United matches that you've ever seen. It's certainly one of the most memorable I've ever seen. Most of us have never seen one that looked like that. 5-0, we'll of course talk a lot about it. JJ will do the best he can to remind himself that this is not a Liverpool podcast, that this is technically a neutral <laughs> podcast. It should be an interesting effort. No, I, I, I've, got, I've got all I'm going to, here's the plan, I'm going to create what I like to call a gloat bubble. Right, so there will be an allocated time for the gloat, and then the rest will be just talking about the game and analysis. I mean, do we want to just tell the like many thousands of Manchester United supporters that listen to this podcast to just like hit fast forward to a certain no. point? I mean, will you be able to contain yourself? I saw on Twitter you were you were bordering on insufferable. You texted me yesterday, basically ready to do an emergency podcast over it. Uh, I'm so I'm I've never I forget what you said I had your text message here um, I don't have them in front of me now but uh, you you completely forgot that I was like ready to put a hole through my wall after the Tottenham West Ham game but we will your be problems we will be the neutral other problems of the world became announced to me everybody else was in irrelevance this was all about me. <sighs> We've got uh, Real Madrid and Barcelona to talk about. We've got some some other interesting games from over the weekend. Chelsea, yeah. wow. Watford, wow. Uh, MLS stuff, mailbag, big podcast. Really, really excited about this. Um, it felt like a lot happened over the weekend across the world in soccer. But let's start, of course, what you are still gloating about, what you are still floating, rightfully so, about, and what took place at Old Trafford yesterday afternoon. Liverpool just dismantling Manchester United 5-0, the uh, tying Tottenham last season for the, the biggest beatdown there of a United side, a five-goal deficit. That one was 6-1. Um, and this was... This was over fast. There are not too many games, JJ, that I watched. Like for me, the gold standard of, oh my God, what am I watching right now? When from a beatdown perspective, I, I hold all of those up to what happened to Brazil against Germany. Yeah, uh, it's the gold standard. And and not often do I have those feelings come rushing back the way I felt watching from like minute twenty to thirty of that game. But the first half, this is over a little bit larger of a span of time, but it was still confined to within one half. I felt similarly that this is not a fair fight, what I'm watching right now, that the, the referee needs to step in and stop this. Yeah, sometimes we go over the top when we talk about um, sporting endeavors and games of sport and football matches being humiliations. This was nothing short of humiliation. Um, a goal every 10 minutes for the first 50 minutes, you know, uh, <laughs> incredible. And, and you thought at halftime, you thought he's going he's to get them in. 
uh, he being Ole Gunnar Solskjaer, and he, he'll shut it down a bit. He'll contain a bit. I mean, this is 4-0. This is humiliation of the highest level. He can't let this continue. And then Salah scores the hat-trick goal. Mm-hmm. And you're like, what am I watching? And you look at the clock, and it's not even an hour gone. Incre- absolutely. I haven't seen the game. This game, I suppose this game changed. And we'll talk a bit more about it, because you, you've got some really nice questions on the rundown. But this game has been a tight, tetchy, nervy kind of game with not usually very good football and often nil-nil or one goal or one-one or something like that. But that kind of changed at the end of last season when Liverpool went and scored four at Old Trafford. And now that's nine goals in their last two visits to Old Trafford. Uh, yeah, which is why I was a little bit, at the end of the last podcast, th- this was the other thing I saw on Twitter, that you were taking your victory lap. Somebody tweeted at you how right you were. And, yeah, that's and you, it. Why and you were like, yeah, I was. And I was thinking to myself, what is, what, he predicted Liverpool to lose. No, I didn't. No, I said, I said that... And it was, I got it wrong. I didn't, I didn't predict Liverpool to lose, but I thought it's conceivable. Because I guess I did, after United's late win against Atalanta, I did what everyone seems to keep doing, is to give this manager the benefit of the doubt. <laughs> that, you know, this will be the inflection point. This will be the turning point. And I guess somewhere I've internalized this, and even though I'm his biggest critic, or one of his biggest critics, Maybe I started to believe that nonsense. And so what I said was, in response to the Paul Scholes, who, by the way, absolutely nailed it, Scholes said, you see what happens at the weekend if they play like that. Those were his words. See what happens. And he was absolutely right, and I was completely wrong. Yeah, and uh, like we said, it was over quickly. And so let's talk a little more about it. Now, the first thing I was kind of thinking about as I was watching this, because, you know, uh, I've really thought, highly of Liverpool from our preseason prediction podcast through certainly what happened yesterday. Sure. Um, and so the question I kept thinking about is, okay, I, Manchester United are going to be the story that comes out of this. There's no question about that. Just yeah. who they are, the way they've been playing, this manager, Ronaldo, everything that goes into United. Um, but I keep thinking, let us I don't want to forget about Liverpool. And so the question that I was kind of thinking about was, who did this game say more about, Liverpool or Manchester United? You know, it's it's probably going to irk some Liverpool fans, but I, I think it said more about the state of Manchester United. Um, Liverpool are were absolutely ruthless. Uh, there's no question the way they took their goals was excellent, but if you look at that first half, there was plenty of sloppy Liverpool play. You know, I don't think Liverpool got out of second gear in the first half, and they ended up 4-0 up. I, I truly believe that. And Jurgen Klopp said something. He said, uh, he was asked, I think, what did you say at halftime? And he said, well, we're 4-0 up, but we, we need to play better. That's what he said. So it's hard to come away from this and talk about how brilliant Liverpool were when United were so abject. There's no getting away from the rabble they became in that game. Yeah, a couple of things. First of all, there is no better, while genuine, and I believe, and you're right, there's no better trolling that Jurgen Klopp can do of Manchester United than to make a comment like that. Oh, like, yeah. It, it's just such subtle, like, 
we're pounding you and we're not even really playing that well. Um, now, I, I led into this by talking about how I don't want to forget about Liverpool, and we won't. But the answer to this question of who this game says more about, to me, it's unquestionably Manchester United. Um, because just like the poor results leading up to this and then being just thrashed by a team that coming into the season and then once the season started and you saw the moves that Manchester United had made – like this is supposed they're supposed to be equals these two especially playing there at home at Old Trafford like this this is supposed to be two really good teams on equal footing that there are Manchester United fans that might they can't think it anymore but they might think we should be better than this Liverpool side so to get just taken apart like that that says more about United than it does about Liverpool Um, I mean you could leave this game really with no doubt with no doubt that Liverpool are not just better than United right now, but they're they're in a different tier. Like I don't, they are. you know, I've been saying throughout the course of the season that I think we are going to see a four-team title race right to the end. That position has become an untenable one for me, and, and things may change. I don't know if they're going to make a manager switch. We'll talk about that. I don't know if at some point United will gel in a way that we're just not seeing yet. Solskjaer will change something up, and, and things will change. But to look at it right now, I, I would be a fool to sit here and continue to tell you that United are going to be a part of this title race. Uh, I, I'm, I'm allowed to change my mind if something changes again, but how can I say that right now? So to me, that's that's a United issue more than it is a Liverpool one. Yeah, and I, I think for me, I've been, I've been fairly consistent on this. I don't see a plan with Ole Gunnar Solskjaer. I don't see any execution of a system. I think it's completely higgledy-piggledy, <laughs> and it's gotten worse since Ronaldo has been signed. In fact, Ronaldo makes this team uh, obviously and clearly worse. And so, like, nothing I saw yesterday, even though my prediction was, or or what I felt might happen, was completely wrong. Like, we have been saying this all along, Andrew. And, 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 you know, you talked there about, well, can United still gel? We've got to dispense with the idea that United can be better under this manager. They cannot. The evidence is overwhelming now. And it's amazing to me the amount of absolute abuse I got when I questioned the Ronaldo signing. I questioned, you know, whether United could be a serious contender. Every United fan that told me we finished second last season, you know, we were in a title race. No, you weren't. You were nowhere close to it. Nowhere close to it. You weren't in the same zip code as Manchester City. And guess what? Now you're even worse than you were last season. And what you talked about, tears, is, is correct. Liverpool are, were playing a style of football uh, just from a different planet compared to their opponents yesterday. Yeah, Liverpool, Chelsea, and Manchester City have separated themselves. And Manchester United right now are not a part of that group. And that's clear to see. Uh, let's talk more about Solskjaer because we're kind of we're, yeah. we're getting into that now. And, and you know we've said just for for a couple of years now how he has this Houdini act of getting to the edge, and then he goes on a run and saves his job. And you just wonder, okay, a five nil against your rival um, has this now? Is this finally the push over the edge that he has not gotten before? And, and I've been really thinking hard about that because the problem for Solskjaer is, you know, you think about managers and the excuses that we make for them when they're on the hot seat. And one of those excuses oftentimes it comes down to, you know, do they have a lot of players who are injured? 
Um, do they just not have that talented of a team where maybe we expect more from them than what we should? Right now, I don't see injuries really on this squad. And I see a team where Solskjaer has been backed with 400, through $400 million worth of signings. Um, you know, and, and just this year, between Sancho, Ronaldo, and Varane, a, a treasure trove of key signings. So from a talent perspective, I mean, look, Liverpool are better a better team than Manchester United, but like player for player, talent for talent, it's certainly close. And there might even be people that look at it and, and tip the scales Manchester United's way. But it, well, but as far as a cohesive team is concerned, like it, it, they're nowhere near one another. So when the talent and the cohesion don't align, and in like such a profound way as this, you you'd have to look at the manager. I mean, certainly, you know, I've always been somebody who says players don't take enough responsibility. We put too much on managers, too much on managers. But when the talent is this great, and he's getting this little out of them, sure, players can look themselves in the mirror, but this is a manager problem, I think, with this club right now. Well, I, I totally agree with you, and he should have been fired. If not, the, the, Liver, the Liverpool fixture that he should have been fired over was that game I referenced earlier at Old Trafford, where Liverpool rolled in with two centre-backs who are no longer at the club, and he had Bruno Fernandes, he had um, a wealth of, of what you would say attacking talent at his disposal. He rested players on the Monday against Leicester, lost that, so they could just play Liverpool, and he lost that game too. I think he should have been fired then. I think he should be fired after what happened in Gdansk, Andrew, against uh, Villarreal in the Europa League final. That, was, that got brushed over very, very quickly. He does not have what it takes. Uh, Lee Dixon was... Really interesting throughout the game yesterday on Cocoms because he kept talking about the United press. Like it, United started off like a, like a whirlwind trying to you know discombobulate Liverpool and press them. And the first goal, if you look at how many players were out of position, were stretched like Lindelof, all the gaps that appeared, all that came from like United just not knowing what they were doing from being tactically inept like what Paul Scholes predicted. And they weren't compact. They weren't tight. And that's the manager's job. You know, when Maurizio Pochettino took over at Spurs, Andrew, how quickly could you see what Poch was trying to do? I'd say about halfway through his first season, roughly. Halfway through his first season. You, You still have no clue almost three years on what Solskjaer is trying to do here. Nothing. No, nothing tangible. Phil McNulty at the BBC, he wrote this, which I thought was pretty prescient. He said, Solskjaer's team is a collection of talented parts, which he shows no sign of bolting together into a coherent unit. The opposition at Old Trafford was the very definition of what United are not. United have plenty of talent, but nothing that pulls it all together. This is the job of the manager, and at this and at the moment, it is beyond Solskjaer. Yeah. I mean, it's hard to get away from that analysis. Gary Neville had... Uh... Gary Neville was pretty discombobulated himself after the game, and this is what he had to say on Sky. That was a shocker, an absolute shocker, and the timing couldn't have been worse because it's been building now for a few weeks against what I've called half-decent teams. And as soon as they played a proper team, they've been obliterated, pulled to pieces, dismantled, and I didn't think they would play like that today because I thought they'd flick a switch, but you can't flick a switch in football. That Manchester United group of players, they get outrun. They're one of the lowest-running teams in the league. We know that from the stats that we see week in, week out. And there's nothing worse than being told you're one of the lowest-running teams in the league and that you're easy to play against. 
but they are both. And that's a poor reflection upon the manager, the staff and the players. He stopped short of asking for his his good friend to be removed, mm-hmm. which I suppose is to be, is to be, you know, you can understand that. It's, he's in a difficult spot. Um, but he has garnered a lot of criticism from people in England for not calling for the manager to be removed. I mean, do we do we need to hear that from him? No, we don't. Like, I wh- why do we don't. need blood from Gary Neville? We can all make up our own minds. If there's a pundit out there that isn't saying that, like, I, I don't know. I heard enough there in that comment. Like, I don't need to, like, rake Gary Neville over the coals for not demanding his friend be fired. I, we get it. Like, we all understand what's going on here. I, I agree with you. Um, but he's right in what he says. And, you know, so with Solshire, all right. So I'm going to ask you now to educate me. Okay. A little bit, you know. You keep saying we we talk about you know what are they what they're not doing well. Their press is not cohesive. We could clearly see yesterday they were trying to press, but like everyone was didn't know of, how to do it. Everyone was late. Like it just felt like every yeah. Liverpool player was receiving the ball and had time and space as a player was running towards them. And then they, you know, Liverpool are also excellent. Uh, again, I yes. don't want to lose that. Every Liverpool pass, it feels like there's a purpose to it. Every guy who, who collects the ball knows where he's going next with it before he even receives it. And you can see that. And when you get when those when players like that who are in this system now that they're clearly all fit for and they're all comfortable in, they all know what they're doing, you know, there's a plan and you can see it. Yesterday, like United, you've got Maguire and Luke Shaw crashing into one another. Uh, I think it was for the second goal, which, you know, directly leads to to a simple Liverpool goal. And it's just like the, the, it was on full display yesterday. What one what one team looks like when they have a plan, and what one team looks like when they don't. So, what is Solskjaer to do? Like, give me. I don't. I know we don't often go down like deep into tactics, but how can he make this work? Because it sounds like he's. I don't know. It doesn't sound like he he's going to lose his job. No. It, so, it, so it, if it, he stays, what what can be done moving forward to try and fix this? Well, the first thing he should probably at least think about is dropping Cristiano Ronaldo. But, but, but we can't do that. He can't do that. And you can't cover in the modern game, or at least I don't think you can. We had, we had a listener tweeted, tweeted me and says, I agree with you about Ronaldo, but if he's not droppable, can he make this work? And it would take a brighter mind than me to figure this one out. It means someone, it, it, it needs everyone else who's involved in this, uh, in the press, or however they want to play to be absolutely on on top of their game and to be somehow able to cover up for what their center forward is not doing. So he could drop him, but but we know he really can't. The other thing to do is to drop further back, Andrew, 15, 20 yards back, and be a kind of a 15, 16 Leicester. Harness the harness the creativity of Bruno Fernandez. Harness the speed that you have on the side with um, Mason Greenwood, Marcus Rashford, and the running you have with uh, uh, Edinson Cavani. Try and do it that way. Be compact. Be hard to beat. Um, other than that, I, I don't think he's capable of doing that. Uh, you could see at the week uh, at the weekend, United tried to be compact. I mean, come on, what am I even saying here? Um, I, I think honestly, Andrew. His mistakes have been, they've been many, but I think allowing key former figures in the club access to his decision-making process and then signing Ronaldo, when it was clear to me that if you look, if there's been any plan under Solskjaer, the plan has been youth. 
and instead he's destroyed that by bringing in this this centre forward, this iconic player that is struggling now to play with the younger players. Did you read Ma- yeah, uh, Mark Ogden? Yes, that Ronaldo and Mason Greenwood seem to not be able to get on the same page, and it's becoming a problem. Yeah, I mean that's that's a huge thing. I think the second mistake he made was not selling Paul Pogba to fund the buying of a defensive centre midfielder. Pogba was shocking yesterday in his in his cameo or whatever you want to call it, his introduction. I, it's as bad a few minutes of football as I've, I've seen. Coughed up the ball in the middle of the park for the goal, uh, for the fifth goal. And then the tackle, obviously, and Naby Keita, dreadful too. Um, yeah, and finally the coaching, Andrew. His coaching is just, it's, it, it's not been good enough. Yeah, so a couple things to react to what you just said there. First of all, I totally agree about not having that defensive midfielder or somebody who, who will do the dirty work. We've said that for, uh, I mean, countless number of episodes on this podcast. We've said they, they're not going to get N'Golo Conte, but they need a light version of that. You know, like, it's, it's just been United's M.O. post Sir Alex Ferguson to be more interested in the glamour signing rather than the one that maybe makes the most sense. You know, Adrisa Gay changed teams in this time. You know, going from Everton to PSG, wouldn't a player like that be the right fit for a Manchester United or like a, a Wilfred? I don't, I, I do not disagree with that. And you're saying there a Wilfred and Didi type from Leicester City, something like that. But instead, they've, you know, and I'm not saying that they've spent, you know, that they've been stupid about all their spending. They needed central defenders, and and even with some of the mistakes he's made recently, I know that this isn't the greatest time to be lauding him, but. Harry Maguire and Raphael Varane, under normal circumstances, is a good central defense partnership. Juan Basaka out on the uh, at fullback, like that, those are good signings. But we've just seen a lot of glamour signings come in up front, where maybe they weren't necessarily what what Manchester United needed in that moment. Here's the only thing I'll ask you about Ronaldo. Again, I'm not I'm not trying to be argumentative. I'm just these are I'm just purely asking. You're saying this is this won't change until he's dropped. Uh, no, it's, but, it's but pa- United. United, though, like you've been saying, these problems have existed under Ole Gunnar Solskjaer for over a year now. Ronaldo yeah, yeah. has only been here for two months. So, like, how if the problems were the same before and they're the same now, how is it entirely on Ronaldo? It's and- not entirely on him. I said he's made it worse. It just it doesn't. It's not a a criticism of of his ability to head the ball or his goal scoring prowess. It's not about that. It's about what was the what is the plan? What is the the germ, the root of an idea that Ole Gunnar Solskjaer has for this side? And how does Ronaldo fit into it? If you want a, a a front three, which which is what I thought he wanted all along and I'm pretty sure he did until Rio Ferdinand and Alex Ferguson got in his ear, was to have a mobile front three. I, I'm sure he didn't buy Jaden Sancho. Who, uh, who was sitting on the sideline looking glum yesterday. I'm sure he didn't buy Jadon Sancho to play with Cristiano Ronaldo. So my point is, Andrew, Ronaldo doesn't get him further down the line towards that fluid front three, that attacking triumvirate. It doesn't get him anywhere near it. It, it just doesn't, it doesn't work. And there's no one to cover for the kind of work. Like, l- look at Bobby Firmino, for example. Um, like, we should talk about what Liverpool got right yesterday. Mm-hmm. You know, Firmino winning the ball off uh, off Pogba for the goal, like the work rate that goes into that performance is is huge. And, um, you know, if Ronaldo is just not going to do anything without the ball, when United don't have the ball, that is just such a massive problem. You're like playing with 10 men. You just are. 
I, I hear that. I, I just, I guess I just wonder a couple things. The first being, I just don't think he's the only pure number nine that plays that way. I think a lot of guys who play that position are single-minded and still able to succeed. And Ronaldo, by the way, has. Uh, I mean, he he was the golden boot winner in, at, in Serie A last year, was he not? And I don't think he's really changed Andrew, very much from Andrew, then to now. Andrew, Andrew, Juvent- Juventus. Did Juventus get better with him at the club? From- uh, no, I mean, no, they have not. They did not. Um so and it's not all about Ronaldo. It's like I mean, how can you legislate for what what Paul Pogba does? Getting caught in possession. How many big games has he got caught in possession? And the next thing they're down the field, and 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 it's a problem. It happened in the Europa League final as well in Gdansk. It happened. It, it happened again at the weekend. It's not just Ronaldo, but he it is a big part of it. And I often think United look better when Cavani starts or plays. Many of the performances I've seen where I thought United have looked okay have been with Cavani in the side, but he doesn't get a look in here. Um, yeah. I, I, I don't want to say I told you so, but I did ask, how was this going to work? I needed to know what was the thinking behind getting Ronaldo. And there wasn't any. There just wasn't any, except he's the great one, probably the greatest goal scorer of all time, and he can still do a job for us. And everything else surrounding that was ignored. Everything. The evidence from his time at Juventus, what you're trying to build with your youth players, all that was thrown out the window so it, it was ensured that he would be back at Old Trafford and not at the it he had. Nothing sustains you quite like being able to say, I told you so. I will never agree with you saying, I don't want to say this, but... I'll tell you uh, what sustains me, truly sustains me, was watching Sir Alex Ferguson puff his cheeks out in absolute disgust as the fifth goal goes in. Oh, you and are... Then and then the cameraman panning straight to Kenny Daglish, who was just in uproars of laughter. He can't believe what he's seen. That was, that was some good television. That was some really good production value there to make sure they knew where both of those legends were in the stand and to, and to get the camera on them at that moment. Yeah, Sir Alex couldn't have enjoyed that. <laughs> that had no. to have been hard to watch. And, and I'm, again, God, this is going to get me in trouble, but I'm going to say it. He's part of the problem too. If he had the role that, that we're, we're told he had, in signing Ronaldo, that's part of the problem too. And that is something that I really feel sorry for Ole Gunnar Solskjaer to have to put up with this. This guy, the ghost at the feast, he's still around, he's still pulling the strings, and the manager doesn't have full autonomy. That is a problem, Andrew, and you can't say it isn't. Uh, a couple notes on Liverpool that are worth mentioning. Mohamed Salah, just unbelievable. First player to score a road hat trick at Old Trafford since. Um... April 2003 in the Champions League. Big Ronaldo, League. big yeah. Ronaldo. That's right. Other Ronaldo. Other Ronaldo. Yeah. Very good Ronaldo. Yep. Uh, Salah's hat-trick breaks a tie with Fernando Torres for fourth most by a Liverpool player in the Premier League. Do you know uh, Do you know the three who have had more? More hat-tricks? For Liverpool in the Premier uh, League era. Robbie Fowler. He's, he's number one, yes. Michael Owen. Number two. And... Uh, Ooh, uh, Ian Rush? No, Luis Suarez. Ah, Suarez, yes, yeah. yes. Yeah. Suarez. Uh, Good old Luis. Mo Salah, I don't know what else you can say. He's just in one, He's just in some kind of zone right now where everything he does seems to be the right thing. Even J.J., the third goal that he scored, as I was watching it develop, you know, he's in position where you think, okay, this is obviously dangerous, and it's Mo Salah, so look out, we could have something here. But then you see his second touch, and you think, oh, no, not quite. 
but he still gets to it and still chips the keeper. I don't know if that's on Salah for just the quickness with which he got to a ball that it looked like he pushed a little bit too far ahead of him, or if it's on De Gea for not coming quick enough to get it. I guess it's both of them. Everything he does right now just turns to gold. It's incredible. By the way, we have to talk about Jordan Henderson's pass. Mm -hmm. I talked about Firmino turning the ball over from Pogba. The pass, Andrew. That kind of a pass is not something you instantly uh, relate with uh, Jordan Henderson. You don't think, oh, outside of the foot, passes that curve into the path of a striker. That's his game. I, I thought Henderson was brilliant yesterday as well. Player of the year performance, if you ask me. Ah, uh, stop. Why can't you ex- luxuriate in the goal? You were all over Salah's goal last week, the pass for Sadio Mane. And now you won't give this some love? No, I didn't care for this one. <laughs> you are uh, you're a cheap man, cheap, <laughs> cheap man. By the way, I had this weird kind of thing going on in my head. I was, I was trying to work out. I went for a walk today. I was trying to work out a good analogy for Ronaldo and the things he won't do off the ball. Oh, yeah, yeah, and all yeah. I could think of was like your basketball league. So imagine if I showed up with a guy who's, he play, say he was on the bench at Duke, uh, at Duke University. Say he had like good pre- pedigree and his name is Jeff. And uh, we show up for a league game. I say, oh, here, here's our new player, Jeff. And you're like, oh, great, Jeff. Yeah, I heard about you, man. Um, so here's how we like to play. And Jeff goes, no, I'm, I'm going to stay on for every single minute, but I don't do defense. I don't do man marking. I don't do any of the things. I just stand and I wait for you to get me the ball under the hoop. Mm-hmm. Is he scoring? Would, is he putting up 40 a game? I mean, I don't know. Because then it might be, then his pros may outweigh his cons. Yeah. I mean, Jeff's not been the same since he, he left Duke, you know. Oh. Career didn't really work out for him. Then he had a couple of divorces. Oh, oh my. <laughs> you went to a dark place. It's not, he's, at, he's at it rough. Uh, he's a bit paunchy. He's not quite, but you know what? Coach K liked him for about 10 minutes. So Jeff comes along. You wouldn't tolerate Jeff. He would never come out of the game. He would refuse to come out of the game, be subbed out. Andrew, you would have no time for Jeff. Probably not. No, probably not, unless yeah. he's unless he's producing. Then you can't really oh, say Even anything. if he was producing, even if he was giving you like some a couple of magic moments, his refusal to do anything else would really get under your skin. Right, but I'm saying winning – Winning has a way. What do we say? Winning is the great deodorant. It has a way of covering up the smelly stuff. You know, everyone's like feeling good win- after a win. And yeah, okay, you might think when you get home and talk to your wife, you know, you might think, uh, like, I just kind of wish you would do these things differently. But, you know, but we're winning. But like when yeah. it looks like that, when, it, when you're losing 5 0, well, then you're not winning. Then it's not what, what's happening is not working. So yeah, yeah it becomes easy for this to, to bubble to the surface. Um, Two other notes on this before we turn. Anyway, the page. that's my new character, Jeff. Okay, yeah, he sounds like quite a guy. I look forward to many more episodes featuring him. Uh, Jurgen Klopp, two hundred career wins with Liverpool, JJ, in all competitions. Fastest manager to two hundred wins in club history. Did it in three hundred thirty-one matches with Liverpool. This era that you are a part of, that we're witnessing right now, is it's one of the greatest in their history. We're seeing it. One hundred percent. I should also say, what did Liverpool do? After Brendan Rodgers, they went and they got the best possible replacement. Now, are United going to do exactly that or are they going to wait? That is a key question. Well, I mean, look, right now it's it seems to be all about Antonio Conte right now. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know how much that moves people. I'm not saying he's a great manager, certainly, and I and an upgrade. Um, whether I, I or not, whether or not mo- he's a culture changer, uh, I don't know. 
He he's done it before. I mean, I think the job he did to Chelsea was really I think it was underrated. Um he's fiery, he's a fiery character. Mm-hmm. That shouldn't I don't think that should uh discount him. Um and I, I don't know and he said he wants the job. He more or less has said he wants the job. He's he appears to be leaking that he has interest. Uh the old uh, the old tweet from Fabrizio Romano has uh, has done the rounds. So um I, I think United fans particularly in the immediate aftermath of that absolute hammering would be would be very very happy to to hear about his name being mooted. By the way, we we're, we're talking about Salah there and we never talked that he has now 107 goals to his name in the English top flight, taking him above Didier Drogba who had 104. And Drogba did that across two periods. In the first period at Chelsea was 8 years. Salah's only been at Liverpool what since 2017-2018. Credible. Half the time Right, you're you're referencing now most goals by an African player in the Premier League. Yes, yeah, incredible. I mean, really amazing consistency. He's a brilliant player, and this is this is probably for all the great versions we've seen of Mo Salah during his years at Liverpool. This is this is what you're seeing right now is the best. This is as good as he has ever been. So, um, Liverpool fans, even neutral fans, I would say to to enjoy this because it's you're, you're watching a, a brilliant player at his absolute peak right now. All right, let's let's move on. Are you like? I know I'm you floating, were you were so giddy before the show. I hope that that satisfied whatever muscle it was you needed to flex. I, I honestly think that your your general tenor about me being excited about this win has been, frankly, disappointing. Yeah, I don't know why. It's it's the one negative. It's a real, it's a real negative quality in me that I, when it comes to sports, I have a hard time watching the joy of others. Like I remember when the Eagles won their Super Bowl. Um, some of my friends that don't that aren't Eagles fans said that you know they were they were kind of rooting for the Eagles because like they knew how happy it would make me and some of my friends that are such diehard Eagles fans and I, that's so nice of them and that's a gene that I just don't have I don't get that joy in watching someone else celebrate a title uh, yeah I have to say I felt so many feelings when you guys uh, had your amazing comeback against Ajax. Uh, in 2019 the fact that you don't feel that way for me is no again like i said it's disappointing i would go as far as to say your favorite word it's it's troubling yeah i was sickened by your comeback against barcelona really oh, made, you really I, made me I, ill you, you were happy that both of us were in the final you were happy for what that meant for the podcast but well i had oh, said from day one as the champions league at that for, as that champions league was transpiring i mean we must have been in the round of 16 and i said Oh, no. I mean, we could go back and find the tape. I said, oh, just don't let it be Liverpool. Like, it would be amazing for Tottenham to go on this run. It would be so much fun. But please, not not you guys. A, because I knew you'd win. You own us. And then I'd have to deal with you for years. And here we are, years later. Yeah. Oh, before we get to El Clasico, um, obviously the tackle on Naby Keita, bad tackle, quick red. Brutal, yeah. How did Ronaldo stay on the field? How is that not violent conduct? I think the fact that the ball served as some kind of barrier between <laughs> Ronaldo's foot and Curtis Jones's body must have yeah. played into it. I mean, Ronaldo could, even though we all we all saw it, we all know what was happening there. You could always lean on this pretend notion that he's just trying to. Maybe he didn't hear the whistle. Maybe he's just like yeah, trying yeah, to get yeah. the ball. Like you're right. We all know, but like. 
Ronaldo didn't actually kick Curtis Jones. He kicked the ball, which was against Jones. So you could play pretend with, with that if you wanted to. That Paul is the, Pogba, uh, though, I mean, there was no, that was brutal, and he had to it, go. And I feel terrible for Keita because he's just hitting stride for the first time since we signed him like three years ago, and he can't stay fit again. And it's not his fault. He, he, it's not his fault. Just, he, yeah. He's dreadful. had the, the two weirdest games that, that I can remember back-to-back. Like we said in the midweek in the Champions League, scores a great goal, yanked at halftime. This game, scores a goal against Manchester United at Old Trafford to get the, the route started gone with an injury midway through the game just like this guy can't get a break like, these are days that he should be enjoying and cherishing forever and these have turned into like bad days for him i, I feel yeah. i feel bad feel i think kanate had a good day as well talk yeah. about uh that was really his what i say coming out party his for liverpool his real announcement i mean they all and, did no one for liverpool yeah. had a bad game this was one of those games you, you pray to be on the field for a game like that everybody's eights nines all around I love it. Yeah, you should. You certainly should. El Clasico, JJ. Real Madrid, they go into the Camp Nou. 2-1, they come away with the victory. Um, fun game, I thought. Not necessarily like played at, at some of the levels we've seen of past Barcelona and Real Madrid games, but I still thought it was fun, competitive. Um, and you know, I've seen, I don't know, I, I feel like I've seen some some real criticism of Barcelona in the wake of this, that you know that they just weren't up for it. I didn't I thought they were fine. Like they're not better than Real Madrid, at least not right now. For whatever reason, mm. I still think they have the talent where they can compete, and they did. It was a it was a very tight game. I thought. In fact, did Barcelona yeah. win the the for whatever I say win? They had I did they have the higher xG in this game? I I, I haven't seen the xG on this I'd one. Have Andrew, to look. I, I think I think they might have. Why don't you do that while I talk about um yeah about how I agree with you, and it's just the whole fact of losing like a, a, such a massive, massive game like this, a derby game kind of glosses over the fact that it was a decent, more than decent performance by Barcelona. They weren't overmatched. They were in the game throughout. And, but for one incredible miss, mm-hmm. like a truly incredible miss from Serginho Dest, who did get an assist for Aguero then later on, which went some way to make up for that miss. But had Serginho Dest scored that, that would have been the opening goal. How would the game have panned out after that then? I, I'd be curious to see it. Now, tactically, the the gap, the hole in behind uh, Mingueza and Dest, mm-hmm. which was exploited a lot by your boy Vinicius, um, several, about three, I think three times in the first half and then definitely in the second half where Dest had a, that, that he was trying to head it back or he was running backwards and uh, Vinicius got in. Um, but, to Dest's really credit, tar- he did he did show his recovery speed there, and he and he made the play to prevent further damage on yeah, that. Yeah, but from a but still, point. he he you're right. He created a dangerous situation, but he fixed it. He fixed it. Yeah, you don't you Dest going forward versus Dest defending are like two di- two very different things. Well, he was um, moved into that winger position again. It seems like Barcelona are now viewing him as as more of an attack player. Yeah, and, uh, yeah. I, I'm not sure. I'm not sure it worked. Uh, it, it it worked at times, um, but he always seemed after that, it's like that miss stuck in his head and he was chasing it. He had the shot then in the second half, which was a very good effort, but he was always trying to chase that miss and trying to right that wrong. Yeah, I that, mean, it, the question of whether or not it worked is an interesting one because, okay, maybe it, you're right. It was asking, it's asking Mingueza to do something that maybe is not what he's best suited to do. So it was going to create problems at the back for Barcelona, but, you know, 
it did set up Dest for an assist in this game, and it set up an opportunity for him where I don't know how he's got to score. Like so, to a certain like tactically, it did kind of work. It, it did create chances for Barcelona, really great chances. One that they scored on, and one that they should that they should have scored on. You're right, but when when uh, Alaba scored his brilliant goal, you, you're just watching Dest and Mingueza come back into the screen, mm-hmm. and you're like, oof. But it was it was a super goal, super finish. Um, yeah, it was an enjoyable game. I've got something to ask you though, and it's not really game related. Real quick, I, I should I, I did look it up, and Barcelona it was it's all very even, but Barcelona did have the edge in XG, one point seven zero to one point six eight. So basically right. a wash, but technically the edge. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I'm just curious about the, you know, we're talking about the way this game is perceived and Barcelona fans attacking Ronald Koeman's car after, now I say attacking, it was, it was a really interesting moment because Koeman is coming out in his Audi and the car is engulfed, surrounded by Barcelona fans and some people are banging on the windows and they're banging on the bonnet of his car and I'm sure that's really scary and like, you shouldn't act like that, um, but what I found curious was so many people were videoing it that the fact that they were more concerned with capturing this moment meant they didn't really do very much. Like, it's very hard to video and slap the car or, or cause damage to Kuman's car or discomfort him while you're, while you're recording it. You know? It's yeah. almost as if... I suppose. Social... That's, st- yeah, that's but... still... That doesn't take away from... Ronald Koeman doesn't know what's going on. He that's probably no, a pretty was, frightening position to be in. I even yeah, it was it was it's an weird. angry mob. It, just, it was, but it just kind of summed up the era for me. You know, and by the uh, way, too, I am that, angry. That, that was sad so, to see. He's a club legend. Yeah, I, it is sad to see, but it sums up a kind of a, a moment in football where a p- performative anger and making sure you record what you're doing is is almost as key. It's not about giving just the message. It's about, like, r- recording it for posterity. I-, I don't know. I found it weird. I found it strange. Yeah. I didn't. I-, I don't know. That whole thing left me feeling just, like, generally unsettled. I mean, like, I don't know if it's a direct comparison, but, like, imagine, you know, Chelsea fans doing that to Lampard at the end. Yeah. You I know, like, that's just, yeah, you don't want to see, like, you don't want to see it ever with any, in any situation with any manager. No one deserves that. But, like, something about a guy who played there and, like, helped build, not build, like, yeah, kind of uh, build did. the club. I mean, that's fair. He's a part of their history. And I don't know, just, just kind of like unsettling to see it. Um, no, I didn't, I, I'm not saying I liked it. I, I just found it a, a very kind of, I suppose I'm gone a bit, you know, from a, a sociological standpoint to see people acting that way and yet very conscious of how they're acting because they're recording it. I found that if there's any sociologists out there who would like to discuss this with me, please get in my get in my mentions. It'd be fun. Let's have a, let's do a whole pod on it. I think that would be interesting. Yeah. Um, Kuman's win percentage in all competitions sixty percent, thirty nine, fifteen, and twelve. It's the lowest of a manager at the club since Frank Reichardt, who was fifty nine percent. I mean, the table uh, is the problem here. When you look at the table and you see, you see Bilbao ahead of them, Real Vallecano. I mean, it's only, they're only a point. Yeah, but, it, but in some ways it's generous because they're still not that far off the top. No. Yeah, you're right. And Real Sociedad right up there. Yeah. Uh, holding their own for a little bit longer. They're a, they're a point ahead of, uh, of Real Madrid now, which is kind of interesting to see it. They, of course, drew with Atleti uh, yesterday, 2-2. Yeah. Um, you know, so there was interesting elements of this game just because we've talked a lot about the transitional phase that 
certainly Barcelona, a little bit Real Madrid as well, that these clubs find themselves in. Um, this is from Stats Perform, JJ. Barcelona's average age of 25 years and 253 days marked the youngest starting 11 by Barcelona against Real Madrid in a La Liga meeting in over 20 uh, in over the last 20 years. Oh, um, sign of the times. But you got Gabby like- out there. You got Ansu Fati out there. I still contend that the future is not as bleak for Barcelona as it might sound. Now it's a matter of whether or not they'll be able to keep these guys. But they've locked up Fati and and Pedri to contracts. Um, with billion euro release clauses. So it's not like, yeah, there's going to be a couple rough years as these guys grow and mature, but it's, I still think that this is not, that we're not heading into this dark abyss for Barcelona. Not yet. I'm too, maybe I'm too optimistic. Maybe I need to darken like you. Um, no, I think the things you're saying are fine. Why, why is everything I say, I don't you know. know I don't held know. up as, as, as dark. I think that's kind of unfair. I, it's your joy that you're this like joy that you have over Liverpool. I just there's something I said. I, there's something about me. There's this evil in me that I need you to come down to my level. I can't. I can't have it. I don't know. I, I need to. I need to change as a person. I'm sorry. But I, I, I want you to. Um, Barcelona have announced this is from the Mirror that they will play Boca Juniors in a one-off friendly match to mark the one-year anniversary of the death of the Argentine football legend Diego Maradona. The pair will meet for the Maradona Cup at Mersul Park in Riyadh, Saudi Arabia, on the 14th of December. However, the announcement has been greeted with disdain from footballing fans across the world for a number of reasons. This doesn't sit well, and you talked about Barcelona's financial problems far be it from me to be cynical like you andrew but i think they're going to rayad for a boatload of money that they absolutely need rather than to pay a tribute to i mean the, the natural question is why is this being played in saudi arabia what is the link here um i think diego maradona now again this is tenuous but i think diego maradona himself while he was at napoli went and played some exhibition at the behest of the Saudi royal family. Okay. Back in the eight, late 80s. But that is not still feels not, even if that's true, which it might yes. be, still feels like a, a bit of a thin string to decide this is a natural place to have this tournament. He played would you say he played an exhibition there once? Yeah. Probably yeah. Like, he played an exhibition at White Hart Lane once. Let's have it there at Tottenham Hotspur Stadium. Yes, Tottenham. He did. He played in a testimonial once for, uh, was it for Asi Adiles or Ricky Villa? Yes. So, okay. Makes about as much sense. Whatever. This is is where we're at. you've pulled apart my reasoning there, and I I commend you for your forensic analysis of what is clearly something that is just about cash. But I'm glad you brought that up because – I was thinking about Boca Juniors and Barcelona, just watching you know, some of the games from over the weekend. We had PSG Marseille. We had Liverpool, Manchester United, El Clasico. What are the best rivalries right now in this sport, JJ? Is Ooh. it still – I always think about Celtic Rangers just because, I, I, it, because that one almost feels political as much as it does athletic. Almost, which is, which, is, which is troubling, but like certainly makes for quite a rivalry. Um, Boca River – Right, that often, was why I thought of it too because of the Boca connection. It often serves of bad games, but it is it is a great rivalry. And in terms of like crowd action and, and crowd involvement, we've seen in the last few years how it, it's it's insane. Celtic Rangers for me has got so much heat and nastiness that it's 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 right up there too. Um Liverpool Everton is still a classic 
Uh, but you've always said that's a friendly rivalry, that that's it, not. It used to be people who know better than me, people who, who live in the city, and um, they talked about there was a fierce rivalry in the 80s because they were both competing for championships, but it was still friendly because, you know, your mom might be a blue and your dad might be a red, that kind of vibe. But that social media has turned it particularly nasty in the last few years. Some of these scenes, if you just go on YouTube, some of the scenes from the Galatasaray-Fenerbahce rivalry is intense, to say the least. I would sub- I'll submit them uh, as I a dark think, horse candidate. No, there, there's nothing dark about them. You're dead right. That That is a fearsome, fearsome rivalry. And again, the fan involvement is everything there. It's... Some of the stories about um, when, when Graham Sunis was manager of Galatasaray and uh, they won, I think, the Turkish Cup against, uh, was it Besiktas? Or, I think, no, it was Fenner. And he, he, he grabbed a flag from the crowd, a Galatasaray flag, ran to the halfway line and stuck the flag into the middle of the halfway line because the Fenerbahce owner, had said, why have they hired this cripple? Because he called him a cripple because he'd had a heart condition. And Sunus was like that. And they literally, he said he was getting attacked. The minute he did it, he was just, oh my God, what have I done here? (laughs) And (laughs) it was just like, oh my God. And he had to be escorted by the police out of the ground. Uh, Just, I I would still say there's parts of Turkey he can't go to anymore (laughs) because of that. Yeah. There, who was it we had on the podcast, Andrew, um, who, who spoke at length about his time in Turkey and yeah. how it formed him as a player? Oh, man. Brad Friedel. That was it. Brad Friedel was on the podcast two years ago, and he gave an amazing interview about uh, about that rivalry and about how his, his apartment was attacked when, by his own fans when they lost the game. <laughs> That's not funny, by the way. Why am I laughing? No, I don't know. I don't know, actually. I was just kind of following suit off of your laughter, but you're right. Yeah. What's the matter with us? Uh, yeah. Submit, by all means, we're probably forgetting some. Submit yours, uh, either as a as a review on Apple Podcasts or iTunes or on Twitter at CO Soccer Pod. I'd love to hear more of these because I, I, I love, I've been, you know, some, some of these YouTube rabbit holes that you go down are just, like, oh. I'll just throw that into YouTube and just watch like some of these wild scenes from, from the fans at these games. So, I'd More, like to submit Shamrock, Ro- sorry, Andrew, uh, Shamrock Rovers and Sligo Rovers and Shamrock Rovers and Bohemians. They're two tasty rivalries. Okay. All right. I'll check them out. Um, hey, let's go ahead. Let's take a break. Uh, all right. We'll collect ourselves. When we come back on the other side, there's a couple more EPL things to discuss. Um, a couple MLS things to discuss. We got a mailbag. Also, I finished finally season two of Ted Lasso. Um, oh, so I, I know you can you can walk away for like three minutes if you want, and no, then I'll text you when you can come on. back um, as I give my review on season two of Ted Lasso. But yeah, still uh, still a bunch more to do. Don't go anywhere. Back now on caught offside. Uh, JJ, I ventured into the animals cage briefly over the weekend. Oh, you did? You yeah, went I on thought, the Reddit. Well, you sent me a link to to something that was in the Caught Offside Reddit, and yeah. I, I could only access it by actually going in there. Oh. Uh, so, yeah, the zookeeper allowed me access, and uh, I spent about five minutes or so in there. What a lovely place. Truly. It, I'm, not even, it, I'm not even being facetious or, or joking around or anything. It was actually, like, really 
nice to see like this kind of like community of people talking about the shows. It, it was beautiful. The, um, the, you, you'll have noticed that they've changed from members to animals on the Reddit. They, they're now calling yeah. themselves animals. So Lovely I, animals, but... Um, so it's yet another place. Like, I, I encourage people, like, obviously, you know, we interact on Twitter, wherever, but, like, that also looks like a pretty fun place uh, to interact. So if you're listening to this podcast and you're a fan of this podcast, then check out the Reddit page because it seems like uh, there's cool stuff going on in there. It's and, nice and it's respectful. Yeah. You know? It's my kind it's of just form. The kind of yeah, that's 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 really your speed. Uh, let's see. I'll give my Ted Lasso review in a few minutes, but before that, JJ, I uh, got him. So there were two results in particular. I mean, I, well, really three, but we spent a lot of time on Liverpool United. There were three results this weekend in the Premier League that, if you didn't see the game and that you just saw the score flash, they were what I call "wait what" results because you would yeah. see that score flash and you just go, "Wait what?" Uh, Liverpool, we talked about, and then. Chelsea dropping a touchdown with an extra point on Norwich, who are done. <laughs> like today, here them. in October, they are finished. And uh, Watford five two. So I'll ask you now, and I have my answer. Which was the more wait what result between those two? Uh I have to say, it was the result at Goodison Park. Mm-hmm. It has to be hundred percent. Ev- Everton starts so well. Then they concede five goals. There was a buzz in the ground. People were happy after about two minutes when Tom Davies scored. It was 1-1 at halftime. Everton then went ahead on the hour. Great goal from Richarlison. Beautiful diving header. I mean, at that point, you think, okay, they'll be fine. Andrew, they conceded, what, four goals in 13 minutes. I have a stat here. It's so horrifying. Uh, Everton fans, hold your ears for five seconds. Watford is the first team in Premier League history to trail after 75 minutes and win the game by three or more goals. How does that happen? How does it happen? And by the way, how does Watford do it? They just lost 5-0 themselves. This was such a bizarre game, one of the strangest games of the season. We won't see too many stranger than this the rest of the season. And I got to say, the performance from Joshua King was absolutely exceptional. Uh, Two of his goals in particular, his second and his third to complete the hat trick, the composure on both of them, really the second one more so, because he kind of took the ball, he collected it on sort of an awkward hop, Pickford bearing down on him a little bit, and it was just a brilliant finish into the side netting. What a game for him to return to one of his former clubs. Wow. Now, I'm shocked that you preferred that one over him sending Michael Keane to the laundrette. I just thought the second one was a a higher degree of difficulty. The way he rolls his foot across the ball, though, on the Keane, I'm calling it the Keane goal, where he just just sits him down. I mean, they're both brilliant finishes. You might be right. I I, I love both of them. JJ Watford had scored up to that point in the season. They had scored... Seven goals? They scored five in one game against Everton. I, I just, I don't know. It was just, it was bizarre and had to be, I mean, it's been a good season so far for Everton. I don't know what their expectations were coming in. 
I well, think they were low. Remember, they were bottom on the on the morale table heading into the season. So <laughs> it had been for what Everton fans were expecting. It had been a good season, but boy, this was this was like a slap back to earth, back to reality in a way that they could not have been expecting. Especially, like you said, especially when they took the lead for the second time. They just couldn't be, have, couldn't could not have seen this coming. No, to be caught the way they were in midfield. If you watch, I think it's the second or the third Watford goal, and you see how far up the field Allen and Tom Davies are and they just get taken out of the game one ball in behind and the next thing it's Seamus Coleman and Michael Keane backpedaling and backtracking it was not what you'd expect from a Rafa Benitez team uh, one thing no. I will one thing I will say mm-hmm. uh, this is what Rafa Benitez said on Friday in an interview with the Guardian uh, maybe it wasn't an interview it might have been at his press conference I, this is Rafa. I said in one press conference that eighth place means nothing to me, and I really mean that. I don't want to stay here and try to survive. I want to be sure I can improve anything with my experience, my view, and my staff. The main thing will be my players. The players. I am not stupid. It depends on the players, what we do on the pitch. I want to be sure every player understands what it means to play for this club and go on the pitch in front of the fans and give everything. They are doing that, and I think the fans appreciate the effort of the players. But it has to be the same in each department. When you see the money spent, the, the money the club has spent, it must be in a better position. You have to compete against all the teams, and it is not straight away that you start winning games and doing everything right. I will be the first to make mistakes, but I have experience and I want to win. How can we win? By improving 5 to 10% in each department. That is a good statement to put out because he's clearly looking for resources. I, I, he's clearly looking for more from his players. Mm-hmm. I feel like that was a good statement to have before you're about to concede five goals because the board are going to look at that and say, he's right, we haven't got enough here. Yeah, that's true. And and this comes as kind of a, you know, I say they'd have, they've been having a good season for what expectations were, but this was sort of the cherry on top of what's been a bad stretch. So they beat Burnley back on September 13th. Since then, they got taken apart by Aston Villa, lost 3-0. Then uh, midweek, right after that, they lost on penalties in the Carabao Cup to QPR. Which, okay, you can say Carabao Cup all you want, but clubs like Everton, they want to go far. Like, that's a chance for them to, to pick up a trophy. Uh, so I would think going out on penalties to QPR was bad, was very bad for them. Then they beat Norwich, whatever, yippee, everyone beats Norwich. Then draw with United, lost to West Ham, smacked in the final 15 minutes by Watford. It's been a rough stretch for a team that started pretty well. It, it certainly has, and um, it will... It's Watford. That's that's part. That's such a big part of it. It's Watford at home, and you concede five, yeah. and four of them come in the last quarter of the game. That is so hard to take. Uh, and so let's also talk about the other one, the the other wait what result. Anytime you see a seven on the board, I mean, yeah, sure, Chelsea and Norwich. Okay, that's not crazy in the way that Watford Everton is, uh, but still seven goals. Um, you have a favorite from the seven? I don't really, Andrew. Um, so I have the the second that they scored. Now the the goal itself, Callum Hudson Adoy, the finish, it was fine. But again, for the second time this year, I'm looking at a Mateo Kovacic pass, and I'm thinking this guy like it's it's time we anoint him as one of the clearly one of the best passers in this league. It was another one of these like forty yard through balls that he just threads perfectly right into Hudson Adoy's path. And he does his, you know, he does what he should do in, in a situation like that. One v one, bit of a tough angle, but still, a good player like him should score. But Kovacic is just what a season 
he's having. I mean, he's a brilliant passer. He, you enjoy him very much. Yeah. But I feel as if this Kovacic talk is just uh, trying to eat up time or trying to create a gap for what's coming, to protect yourself what for do you what's mean? coming. Well, you got to talk about Tottenham. And well, the... I'm not even finished talking about Chelsea. Oh, okay. How dare I just you? you were, I just thought you were avoiding things a bit. Why? I face, I, I, I face all my fears. JJ, I faced the last year and a half of Tottenham, okay? This, this was nothing. <laughs> all right? Um, no, the, the, the other thing I wanted to say about Chelsea before we move off of them is that, uh, boy, who would have thought that we'd be saying this about Ben Chilwell, that he's the first Chelsea player to score four goals in four straight games since Eden Hazard. Like, did not see that one coming. No. And look, good player, definitely good player, but, like, lethal goal-scoring threat? Uh, all right. Wow. Like, if you can add that to Chelsea, just amazing that a few days ago they lose Lukaku, uh, Lukaku and Timo Werner, and we're like, oh, man, that's a brutal blow for a team that's been having a, a bit of a rough time here and they're scoring goals. And then they come out and they score seven. It's just like... It shows what they have. Mason Mount getting a hat trick, missed a penalty, but it was called back for the keeper being off the line. Then he converts it. Although the second one he took wasn't that good either, um, but he, he finishes with a hat trick. So, yep, yeah, on they go, onward and upward for Chelsea. And all right, Tottenham and West Ham. Um, look, Spurs like these London derbies are beginning to take a toll on them. Yes, I mean this is four now. Already, they've lost to Palace, Arsenal, Chelsea, and now West Ham. And look, I'll say this for them, too. I said, and I continue to feel this way about them, I said at the end of the last podcast, when they played well in the win over Newcastle, I said, I don't know what this team is. I don't know if they're good, if they're terrible. I don't know what a reasonable expectation is for them. And I I sit here now, and I still feel that way. Uh, They're very weird. They go through stretches where they look you know, impenetrable defensively um, like they did in the first three games of the season when they didn't allow a goal. Uh, and they, But by the same token, they go through stretches where they look utterly incompetent in attack, which is really frightening when you think about some of the players that they have. And I don't think it's a situation where Harry Kane's head is turned, you know, he's still thinking about Manchester City. Like, we're into the season now. He's back, and he's playing. And, like, so... I don't know. Like, if, if we want to sit here and talk about Solskjaer and, you know, he's got all this talent and he can't figure out how to make it work, yeah, I'm not saying I'm one of them yet, yet, but, like, there is a large section of the Tottenham fan base that is already done with Nuno that thinks we're kind of just seeing a lot of, in a lot of these games, we're seeing a lot of the Mourinho stuff all over again. I mean, West Ham took the lead in this game, and credit to Mikel Antonio, who's just a classic kind of poacher's goal off a corner kick. Uh, but, like, Tottenham looked so incapable of responding uh, to that goal, going down a goal, and, you know, they, they saw all the possession, but they just couldn't do anything with it, just nothing. So, so what do you? what was your response when you heard what Nuno said after the game where he said, he told Sky Sports, we were the better team, honestly. I think we controlled the game. We had chances. We had possession. West Ham are a good team, but they only created chances on counterattacks and set pieces. We played better, but this is football. The last pass was there, but we need to be more aggressive in our offensive game. He seems to contradict himself here. We controlled the game. The whole game was under control. Hmm. I, 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 here's what I'll say about that. I thought in the first half they were fine. Uh, like There was nothing alarming 
in the first half. I guess for me, it was it really was just about the response after West Ham went up, and you kind of thought, okay, like maybe we'll see some kind of at least sustained pressure. And while they had sustained possession, sustained possession and sustained pressure are two different things. And I didn't think Tottenham really applied any West Ham. And some of it is credit to West Ham. Defensively, they were, I mean, they were a rock. Tottenham could not break through them. Um, and so props to them for that, for being as difficult to break down as they were. But the only reason I kind of lay a lot of it at the doorstep of Spurs is because we've seen this in many games this season uh, where they just they have no answer in the final third. They, they've trailed in some of these games, you know, Palace, Chelsea, Arsenal, and they just they don't they just seem void of ideas of how to break through. I mean, we talked earlier and I was wondering it again in this game. Like, I know you don't want to settle for these like 20 yard blasts, but at a certain point, it's like, well, maybe we'll get a deflection. Maybe something weird will happen in, in the 18 because they're just watching them just kind of pass back and forth, lateral pass, lateral pass. I don't know. It's again, it, it's it's concerning because like you start to think, OK, there's there's some flexibility for that fourth spot that maybe we didn't think was going to be there. And Tottenham are in the conversation right now. But then you watch a game like that and you think, well, uh, maybe not. Maybe it's asking too much. I don't know. We'll see. That that could be too negative. Um, but it was a fr- it was a really frustrating watch. Another London derby to go the way that it did. West Ham have played really well against Tottenham over the last year and a half. Um, there's no question about it. And West Ham are a very good team. This is not uh, a cute little story. This is not some, you know, they were not a one-year wonder from a year ago. This this team is tough. They really are. Uh, so I give them full credit. But, yeah, not not a fun morning watching that. No. One. Not by any means. Um, do you have anything else on it, or can we move on to a couple? I've got a couple MLS things I want to get to before mail. Hit me with your MLS. All right, a couple things. So big weekend in MLS. A uh, lot of standout results, kind of like what we saw in the Premier League. I mean, NYCFC 6-0 on the heels of uh, what happened in the, the New York Derby. So they bounced back. That was that was kind of a wait-what result. But the big one for me, Sporting Kansas City go into Seattle. Huge, huge. They come out with a 2-1 victory. Um, this was – I'm not going to go so – I would not call this a statement game, but what it does, it certainly keeps Sporting Kansas City in the race, obviously, for the – that first spot in the Western Conference. They're three points back, tied with Colorado. They're both on 55 points, Seattle with 58, but a game at hand for Sporting KC over both of those other teams. So that's huge. I mean, it's the kind of game that there's a good chance these teams will see each other again in the playoffs. And if you've beaten Seattle on the road, not too far removed from when the this next playoff meeting could potentially occur, there's a belief now. Like they know, okay, we can do this. We have done it. We just did it. Uh, so that's a really important win for Sporting Kansas City. Now, what I would say if I was Seattle is that their absences are absolutely part of the story here. Didn't have Raul Rui Diaz. Uh, and then Nico Ladero and Jordan Morris, if you hear what Brian Schmetzer is saying, I mean, these guys could be back for them in the playoffs. Even Morris, who I, I had kind of in my own mind ruled out, but not Brian Schmetzer says he looks great in training and they're just kind of waiting on the medical staff now to clear him. So those guys will probably be a part of the postseason picture for Seattle. Uh, and so, yeah, sporting KC take, take belief in that victory. Um, but Seattle could potentially still be a, a different beast 
come playoff time if they've got these pieces back. And I'm not saying I expect Jordan Morris to slot right back into the 11 and just be the guy he was before this injury. It takes time. I mean, you've talked about it with Virgil van Dyke, and they play far different positions. I mean, Morris is more about speed and getting down that wing and wreaking havoc, and van Dyke is certainly not that. So, you know, it's going to be, it's going to take some time, and he'll probably just kind of have more of a super sub role. But still, I mean, seeing him come on in the 80th of a, of a tight game, it's that's going to give Seattle a lift. So we'll, we'll pump the brakes before we make any big proclamations. I still think the world of, of the Seattle team. One other thing from this game. I don't know if, if you saw this. I hope you did. The, um, <laughs> the Tim Melia takedown. I don't know how else to describe it other than like a suplex of Christian Roldan that he did not see red on. If you haven't seen it, anybody listening out there, just type in like Tim Melia's name on on YouTube or on Twitter or whatever, and you'll find it. I don't know the last time I've seen something quite like this, where he he just kind of wraps up Roldan in the net and just like throws him to the ground. It's not regular, Andrew. It's not regular. What I would say about it is this. Okay, like for me, it's a red card. If you want to call me soft, uh, fine, go ahead. But all right, so if you believe, if you're someone out there who believes it's not a red, okay, we can do this now. Like, now we know this is a thing that can happen. Like, there's a reason we don't see this in this sport. You can't do that. Like, whether it was, like, started as a harmless kind of, like, coming together or what, I don't know, but it finished as a suplex. And so, like, all right, if you think that that's a yellow card offense or that's not a red or whatever, fair enough. Now we know. All right. That's that's within the rules. Goalies can suplex people. There you have it. Uh, so yeah, for me, red, but also hilarious. Like watching the replay, I must have watched it ten times. I was like, this he really did this in a game and stayed on. Funny. By the way, speaking of suplex, um, New England uh, supporter shield winning. New England, mm-hmm. uh, they came back two 0 down to tie with Orlando, which kind of shows the the resilience of this team and makes me feel even better about them come the playoffs. They've gained 18 points from losing positions during the 2021 season. So that's third behind Vancouver, who have 21, and Sporting KC, who have 19. But um, There is one thing, though, before you move on. There is one thing about that that would worry me. Okay. Now that you that- can't get... That's a, great, that's a great quality for a team to yes. have, this belief that like we're never out of a game. But, like, you know, and Orlando City are a good team. You know, they're 47 points, they're fourth right now in the East. But, like, you do that too many times in in the playoffs when, like, you don't, you know, the pressure mounts a little bit, one and done. Uh, you're playing with fire. And, like, this is a, a this New England team is, is incredible. They're going to win the, the all-time points record, it looks like, with ease. Um, but that's, like, that's a bit of a dangerous game to, like, go down as often as they do yeah i know what you're saying um there is there is a flip side to that coin i am now all in on them going all the way i really want it to happen see i don't really have any team in this so i just watch and enjoy the playoff games just mostly as a neutral Mm -hmm. but i do i kind of want to see bruce do this andrew i think this would be just such an exceptional piece of coaching because when he got this job, you know, the, the backdrop was and probably still is for a lot of U.S. soccer fans. What happened 
that unmentionable night mm -hmm. in 2017. Which we mention probably at least three or four times a month. But yeah, continue. Yeah, it's still there. It's that was the and you felt that that was the you know he got this job in New England amid like the collapsing scenery of his coaching career. Let's be honest. People didn't want to hear from him. They didn't want to see him. And he's done such a brilliant job here. Mm -hmm. I want him to complete it now. And then all will be forgiven. No, it's not about that. It's, a, it's just about a guy who's given so much to the game, who's been one of the great man, uh, American managers. And I, I'd like him to, to kind of round, and, round this off with what really seems unlikely. Because when he took that job, I mean, think of the mess they were. They were a total mess. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And he flipped it around completely to the point where they're record-breaking. And I, I just hope now that the the eyes remain on the prize. Forget the supporter shield. Forget the record. No one's going to care about that if you go out in the first round. Uh, yeah, certainly. I mean, a team with, that's this good. No, they can't. By the way, there's so many people just rolling their eyes across across the world right now as they listen to me make the case for Bruce Arena. They are still not interested in hearing about him. Uh, let's see. We have a mailbag. Before that, I'll give my quick Ted Lasso recap. Oh, please do. If you'll, yes, if you'll I'm, allow I'm, I'm it. Curious. Yeah. So um, the first thing I would say is I I like the season. I know that there was some criticism of it, which I don't entirely understand i thought it was good like if you liked the first season i don't know why you wouldn't have also liked this season um it wasn't so much that there was criticism there was a couple of articles written that that were quite critical but you're not allowed to be critical well of this I, show. I think for some people it became a thing like you you know too many people like this that can't be hey i have hey, to tear it down andrew andrew you have to stop you know, the, saying the that approach cause, you've cause taken you, you know that's not the case don't put words in my mouth. All right. All right. Um, my, I don't here, like it. Here are my two my two criticisms, and I don't want to give spoilers. So um, I guess hit the fast forward button a couple times if you don't if you haven't seen it yet. Um, my first criticism would be so there was a lot of people who did not. There was one episode in particular from this season that was a total removal from what this show has been. It was the Coach Beard episode where he basically they lose in the FA Cup uh, semifinal and he kind of goes on a bender. And they do a whole episode just about him and this bender that he goes on. Now, a lot of people didn't like it because it was just like, this isn't the show that I thought I was watching tonight. Uh, here's what I would say about that episode quickly. Um, I actually love the idea of it, of like giving Coach Beard an episode where we kind of like, he's got this weird sort of quiet darkness to him. I, I'm all, I'm in on exploring what's going on with that guy. He's an interesting character to me. The problem with the episode for me was. They centered it around him with the three dudes from the bar. And, like, no offense to them. They're fine peripheral characters, I guess. But I'm just not interested enough in those characters where I want to go deep on them and, like, have them spend this crazy night with Coach Beard. Like, who are these guys? I would have much, I would have been fine with that episode if instead of those three random guys that are out with Coach for the night, it's like a couple players on the team that we kind of know a little bit and are more interested in. Uh, so that was my only criticism from that episode. I know a lot of people, my sister hated it. A lot of people at work that I was talking to hated it. Thought it was a good idea, just didn't like the way they executed it. So that's my only critique from that. And then from the finale, this is where you really got to uh, turn me down if you don't want any spoilers. Uh, so obviously we all know that Nate takes this unbelievable heel turn 
He is now the villain. JJ, he's West Ham are setting up to be kind of the villainous team next season. As okay. uh, Richmond have been promoted. Nate, another season. Oh, yeah. You better believe it. You better believe it. And so West Ham have been bought by um, the, uh, the, woman, the woman that owns Richmond. Her evil ex-husband has bought West Ham. He's hired Nate, who takes this heel turn and is just a jerk. My only problem with it, okay, I think making Nate into that character is interesting. I'm, I'm okay with it. I think that's fine. But the speech he makes, I wonder if other people thought this too. At the end, when he tears into Ted... Uh, and he talks about, you made me feel like I was the most important person in the room, and then you completely abandoned me. Where did that come from? Like, were there any scenes, maybe I'm just forgetting, but were there any scenes this season that showed Ted in some way ignoring or abandoning Nate? Like, that's mm. that's a fine storyline to go down, but there should have been some kind of Easter eggs planted throughout the course of the season that could show you why, at least like give some credence to Nate feeling that way. It just felt, almost as- it felt too random. Uh, yeah, like an afterthought. Like to me, Ted was this guy that gave the equipment manager a chance to be a coach on the team, and then that's it. Like there was no other real conflict between them, and then all of a sudden, Nate has just like he doesn't feel like he's getting the credit he deserves. But like I don't know what actually happened between him and Ted that would have made him so bitter against Ted. Uh, so I feel like if they wanted that to be the storyline, that's fine and that's cool. But there should have just been more to make that believable that Nate could feel that way. Um, but I didn't really, I didn't really get that again. Maybe I'm forgetting, maybe there was an earlier episode. So I'm sure the animals out there, they'll correct me, but that was just how I felt. So, but all in all though, good season. I look forward to it each week and I will certainly continue watching through the next season as well. Um, so there you go. That is my season two Ted Lasso recap, uh, mailbag, JJ, what do you got? Cutoffsidepod at gmail.com. That's the email. Cutoffside ESPN on Instagram at Pod on Twitter. Matthew Daniels kicks us off from the Instawebs. Hey, guys, something for a mailbag. I'd like to know what you guys think of RSL's right back Aaron Herrera for the U.S. men's national team. He now has 10 assists on the season, although Transfer Market says he has nine, and recently played in a back three in Salt Lake's last game, uh, notching an assist as well. I think because he is in MLS and plays in Utah, mm-hmm. he doesn't get enough credit. He deserves for a call up. So, <clears throat> Matthew, I'd be lying to you if I if if you know he's come across my radar that much or that I've analyzed his game that much. But the the easy answer to give you is that he is way down the line because there's just so many um, fullbacks. Uh, in that U.S. men's national team setup, I don't know what you think, Andrew, but it's very hard to break into it. Yeah. Now, look, he is in the U.S. setup. He was an under twenty. He was under twenty three with the Olympic team. So mm. he is like he's on the radar, and it's a good shout by Matthew because he is having an exceptional season. I think the thing with him was always that he was good in defense, but was he going to bring enough in attack from what has now become essentially fullback is like an attacking position. Now, is he going to add that element to his game and you see his assist numbers? So he has, um, the problem, like you said, is that there's just a log jam, like where, who's he going to get by? So he is, uh, an old man, JJ, he's, uh, He's pushing AARP levels at 24 years of age. Oh, uh, so he's so over yeah. Him. So, like I say that jokingly because 24 is he's in like he's a youth. He's but a boy. But like Serginio Dest, who plays that position, we think uh, is 20. Reggie Cannon, 23. Brian Reynolds, at some point, you know, will get 
further up in the pecking order. He's 20. Joe Scally is 18. Like, this is the right back right now for the U.S. So I think Herrera is someone who could potentially benefit greatly from, like, if we have another Gold Cup situation, like what just happened with Miles Robinson, um, you know, if he can get on a team like that, that's why the Olympics would have been so huge for players like him. And not qualifying was important for their development and for continuing to like get a shot at the big time um, with the senior team. It's just going to be hard. So if he can, he's going to have to. I hate to say this; it's cold and harsh, but like he'll have to rely on on injuries ahead of him. Um, and he'll if that happens, he's a guy who could potentially get a shot. But right now, just looking at like a full healthy squad, it's it's hard to see. But it's a good. It's it's not a bad thought by Matthew at all. And I understand, you know, this idea of MLS guy and he plays in a small market. He's off the radar. Like that's fair. Um, so I get where he's coming from. But yeah, it's it's just there's a log jam there. It's it's gonna be tough for him. Okay. Let's see what we have next. Conrad, I have a question. What version of FIFA do you guys love playing when you when you were growing up? Back then, I loved FIFA 06 because of the soundtrack and to see mid-2000s AC Milan in its heyday. Also, keep up with the pod, and i like to hear more of JJ using the Sopranos as examples of soccer. Love the pod, guys. Thank you, Conrad. Um, that's a great question. I'm going to let you go first. What is your favorite FIFA? Conrad nailed it. Like that, FIFA 05 and 06 were my uh, junior and senior years of college, and I, I honestly cannot even calculate the number of hours we must have spent playing that those games uh they were incredible like the those fifas were amazing and he's right the soundtracks for those were were peak fifa soundtracks uh what were some of the songs on that on the 06 one i think um block party i think had helicopter Ooh, on it tune. um there were so there, it was great like it was those yeah i, I loved it absolutely loved it um, um, so my yeah, favorite was from EA, EA Sports, but it never it wasn't called it wasn't called FIFA. It was called World Cup '98, and it was on the oh, what do you call it? The Nintendo 64. Okay, I loved it. I just loved it. I mean, graphically, it was it was way ahead of anything I'd ever seen before in terms of a soccer game. I just loved the the, the way you would line up shots. I, I mean. Compared to the modern game, it seems clunky and old, but it was great. It had a, it was a fun game, just a lot of fun. And then I think Pro Evolution Soccer brought out one in 05 or 06 that I really loved. You would be that guy. In a time when FIFA was just like the ruler of the soccer video game universe, you would be a Pro Evo guy. No, I, it wasn't. It, I, it was my friend Frank that owned it, and he used to say, look, they don't have the rights to all the names, or they didn't at the time, but this, in terms of gameplay and even graphics, was a superior game for a brief period. And now I'm not a big gamer head, so there's probably some people who could argue the toss with me over that, but I'm happy to hear from anyone who, who, who enjoyed uh, Pro Evo or thought it wasn't anywhere near what FIFA is, but um, I loved it anyway. And uh, finally, the best boy asks, is Yuri Tielemans one of the best midfielders in the world? Hmm. Which is a good question, and I would say I do not pay. I mean, he scored a brilliant goal at the weekend. 
second weekend of brilliant goals from him, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Um, I don't pay enough attention to how good he is, but if you look on FB Ref, um, the scouting report uh, versus midfielders from the past year, uh, midfielders in the top five leagues, he's he's right up there. Mm-hmm. He's absolutely up there. One of the things that I really liked, he's in the 89th percentile for XG assists, which is XG which follows a pass that assists a shot. That is uh, that is great. Uh, shot creating actions per 90 minutes, 3.10. That's in the 92nd percentile. That is, those are some good midfield numbers. Now, he's in the 21st percentile for his pass completion in the last year, which his pass completion is pretty low at only 79.3. I thought that was interesting. But then again, progressive passes, 89 percentile. So that's, that's the thing is that the pass completion statistic can be a, de- a deceptive one mm. because it might just mean – like there are guys who can boost that number – with simple lateral passing. It might mean that Yuri Tielemann is willing to make the higher degree of difficulty pass with the greater potential reward for it. Yeah, and he plays forward. He's looking to play forward all the time, and sometimes those passes uh, between the lines can be can be more difficult. He's very, very good, Andrew. He is. He's, he's very good. I, I, I wouldn't be able to say to you, nah, he's not, he's not up there. Is he one of the best players? Um. Best midfielders in the world. I mean, I mean, look, he's he's, a, that... he's starting for Belgium, right? So, yeah. like, that's a good, <laughs> that's a good start in in having this conversation. I, yeah, I don't know. I'll say this about him: he's become a scorer of great goals. I mean, he has a couple already this season that are phenomenal. I think in the calendar year, I believe he's got four from outside the box, which no one in the Premier League has more than that. Yes. Um, I'm very curious about where his career goes because his contract expires at the end of next season. And 90minutes.com apparently reported that he turned down Leicester's latest offer. So he may also be of the mindset that he's one of the best midfielders in the world. And (laughs) no offense to Leicester, it's going to be hard to keep him. Uh, We should also mention. So we'll see. We should also mention uh, Pats and Dhaka with just the four goals in the comeback victory over Spartak Moscow to kickstart the Europa League um, campaign for Leicester, which had been faltering somewhat. Yeah, uh, but so, that's that's um, an interesting question though about Tielemans. Where, it is. It is. His place and is. You know what? I, I can be accused and rightly so of not pondering Leicester enough, but. Um, but yeah, he's he's excellent. Yeah. Well, there you go. Is that the mailbag? That's the bag of mail, Andrew, for now. And that is the podcast for now. Really enjoyed this one. Good stuff. I did too. I did too. I really did. I mean, I thought you brought down the vibe a bit with your Ted yeah. Lasso review. Oh, um, okay. But other than that, I thought everything was excellent. I thought we both did a good job. Well, I'm happy that you feel that way. Uh, that's that's very nice. This what- was fun. Honestly, this was this was a good Monday. Yeah, and you know what? I'm feeling good. I'm I was uh, such a good dad over the weekend to Jack. He had soccer, and a kid afterwards. There, there's bleachers by the field, and afterwards, a kid um, kicked his soccer ball under the bleachers, and then kind of just went and ran off. And I was like, oh, great. I love it. And I was like, <laughs> so okay, well, let me see if I can get this. He kicked it all the way under, 
inaccessible. And then Jack realized what had just happened and just lost it. Lost oh. it. Tantrumed out in a way that I rarely see. And then uh, you started crying. Well, I felt terrible for him, but I was also like, enough. Like, you, you don't – it's just a ball. I'll, I, we have another. Like, But he was so upset, so I was like, all Whoa, right. Whoa, you didn't go and get it. Here, Well, here's what happened. I was like, all right, you know what? I see how upset you are. I'm a little – it's a little off-putting, to be honest, but okay, fair enough. You're five. You're having. A, you don't know your emotions yet, and you're having a moment here. I said, "Here's what we're going to do, Jack. This is going to be a teachable moment. Um, I'm going to show you that if you want something bad enough, you can get it. We're going home. We're going to get a yardstick. We're going to get back in the car, drive the 15 minutes back to the field, and we're getting on those bleachers. You're going to point. Uh, I'm going to go up there, and I'm. You're going to be my spotter. Uh-huh. Tell me where the ball is. And so then I was able to go up to the top, like near the top of these bleachers, and my arm couldn't reach it. But when I had this yardstick with me, I could kind of tap the ball and and get it, get it, get it, get it, and then knock it out through. And so we went back and we got it. It was a good dad moment. It was a teachable moment. He was thrilled. Uh-huh. And I and the one thing I said to him afterwards, I was like, all right, here's the deal. We just went. I now see how much this ball meant to you. We went to these lengths to make sure you got it back. You rarely ever use it. I don't see you, you know, and that's fine. But like, if we're gonna, if it means this much to you, then I want, I want to play more soccer with you. And so the next day, uh, instead of watching a movie in the afternoon, he said, "Daddy, I want to go. You want to come outside and play soccer?" I said, "Oh my God, my dream come true." And so we did, and it was a, a really nice, wholesome father-son bonding moment. That is lovely. That really is lovely. And and doing stuff with your dad, it just sticks with you, especially when you're that age. Yeah, I was wondering if he'll remember this. Like if he'll tell, he like when he's in college or whatever, and they're like making fun of like things that their dads did. Is he going to be like, yeah, my dad once like went and got this yardstick just so I could get like a soccer ball back because I was crying like an animal incessantly. Uh, I hope it's not a story he uses when he's meeting new people. I, I, it just doesn't have quite enough bite for me. It's not. It's not going to. You know. Oh God! You, you hear that? You meet Jack Gundling? Oh yeah, he's new. He's the new fresh face on campus. Did he tell you the yardstick story? <laughs> yeah, stuff of legend. Um, yeah, I would have loved if a rabid raccoon that had been housed underneath the bleachers had just sprang at you. That you would have been. I would have loved that, but it didn't yeah. happen. You would love if I like told you, JJ, I can't record today because I need to go get my rabies shot. You'd say, oh, you know what? That kind of makes it worth it. At any rate, <laughs> this was a lot of fun. <laughs> to you, I say. Take it later, fun boy. I'll see you. Take care, Andrew. You've been listening to the Caught Offside Soccer Podcast. 